coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. New ransomware that locks down your bootloader and then makes you pay to boot. Malware that has built-in DRM. You better believe it will tell you the story. Plus some great server questions and our great server answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 260 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March 31st, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. And of course, our live stream is powered by the always incredible and remains incredible Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. My name is Chris, and also joining us every single week, as always, is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Hello, Mr. Allen. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. You know, we kind of lucked out. We're doing uh, a double right now. And the reason why that's kind of lucky is we're doing it on the day before April Fool's. So even though we have a pretty good track record, we should avoid the risk completely of any April Fool stories sneaking in, like somewhere like in the Roundup or something. You know? So this is like a real safe day to do it. Plus, there's a ton of really good news to jump into. So maybe we should just start there since we have so much to cover. I'm taking a stab at this first story. It's Russian ransomware. And we're thinking maybe Petya or Petya. Tell me about the Petya <laughs> ransomware, Alan. Right. So this one, uh, other than in the article, they keep referencing DOS level. Um, in general, it's uh, quite nice. Uh, so this is basically uh, ransomware, but instead of encrypting your files or anything like that, what it does is it encrypts your master boot record uh, and sets it up so that instead of starting Windows, it starts the malware as the operating system. Oh, so this is what classifies it as boot. DOS level? Yeah. Gotcha. So it, it takes over the boot process and won't let you boot the machine it's, uh, so it's until like, you type in a password. It's like ransomware OS. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so malware experts from a German security firm called GData have found a new type of lock ransomware that uses a DOS-level lock screen. I wish they wouldn't call it that. I love uh, it. Since there's no DOS involved. Uh, to prevent users from accessing their files. Unlike most other malwares, the researchers uh, do not, uh, didn't come up with this name. The malware actually came up with its own name because it has a website and a logo on the page where you go to pay the ransom. What a great idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like I said, I'm not sure that DOS-level really makes sense as a term for this. Uh, but yeah. So the, the latest lock ransomware discovered by security researchers is called Petya, uh, which is being spread via spear phishing campaign specifically targeting human resource departments at companies. Uh, the HR employees are sent an email with a link to a file stored on Dropbox uh, where the applicant's uh, resume or CV can be downloaded. The file is an .exe file and usually called something like portfolio-packed.exe tricking people into thinking it's it's a resume and so the HR people open it and their machines get infected. So uh, I have a I have a screenshot here where it says your computer has been encrypted. The hard disk of your computer has or actually says have been encrypted with military grade encryption algorithm. It is impossible to recover your data without N special key. This page will help you with the purchase of this key and the complete decryption of your computer. The price will be doubled in 6 days, 13 hours, 43 minutes and 10 seconds. And then you click this start. This is the website uh where you actually pay them. That's pretty intense with the countdown and whatnot. Now, my question yep. to you, though, is 
does this website load in their malware OS or no? I think you need a separate computer okay. to do it. Yeah, so you only get up, you only get as far as that that that, that yeah. text-based environment. Okay. So well, so what it does is when the malware runs, it encrypts your master boot record, and then blue screen of death your computer to stop it. Classy. Then nice. when it starts up, it starts a fake check disk, where it's actually going through and encrypting your files. Oh, and then brilliant. after that, brilliant. Uh, it reboots and you get the lockout screen. So yeah, as soon as the user restarts a PC after the blue screen, the computer will enter a fake check disk process. After that finishes, it loads the pet you lock screen. Restarting the computer over and over will always enter the screen. Uh, the screen provides a link to the ransomware payment site hosted on Tor. After the user purchases a decryption key, they can then enter it at the bottom of the lockout screen. Uh, Petya claims to encrypt users' files, but GData said that they couldn't verify that claim eventually. Uh, but later, Trend Micro researchers took a look at the Petya malware and confirmed that the ransomware does encrypt files and also reveals that it alters the master boot record, preventing users uh, from entering in, even in safe mode of Windows, uh, which usually you can use to get around some of these lockout type things. Uh, and uh, it asks for 0.99 bitcoins, which is about $400 as a ransom. But as you saw, that ransom will go up if you take too long to pay. So Trend Micro is confirming this. And it's, what I what I what I just noticed the uh, so uh, there the, there's a video out there of the process happening, and I watched the check disk screen come up. Now it happened pretty fast, so it was hard for me to read the whole thing. But what I, I'm sure there was probably. Maybe a mistake in there, but what I saw, if just glancing at it, I said that looked like a legitimate uh, check disk. Which, if you think about it, if your Windows PC crashes and then it reboots and starts do doing a check disk and then it reboots after that check disk, that would be a expected behavior. And so, if you're just like, "Oh, what?" and you kind of glancing over it as your machine's booting up because you're like on your phone now, tweeting about how Windows is crap, and then you look over at your screen, you see the check disk, and you're like, "Now it's checking my files. I probably lost something." Hashtag thanks bomber tweet, right? And then it reboots, and you get that crazy flashing screen, and it is. I, I, you are just like yep. that. That red skull and crossbones flashing at you that says "press any key." That is yep. dramatic. <laughs> that works. I like it. Yep. I mean, I like it from like it's horrible and it. They uh, shouldn't if you do look it. at if you if you pull up the trend micro link, there's a video. Yeah, that, I, I played a little bit of that video while yeah. you were talking about it. There. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty. It flashes uh, pretty intense awesome at you. Stuff. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's, it's, the one thing I did note is it does like if you have UAC enabled, it does ask you to confirm. The prompt, so it's doing it. It has to have administrative level privileges in order to execute from within the Windows environment to overwrite your boot record. So that would seem to be its Achilles' heel. Is if you are separating your privileges out properly, you may avoid this just by that. Do you think, or am I misunderstanding? Yeah. So basically, you have to fall for the malware. Yeah, and, and authorize it unless you have UAC turned off or something. Right. But you know, you get that every file you try to run. Yeah, that's true. And now, you, you know, if it had actually been a zip file or something and the user, if the user knew what they were doing, they would have known that, hey, this is weird. Why is someone sending their resume to me as an EXE file? Uh, but part of it was clever of them to put the file in Dropbox so that people would be able to just, uh, or so that people would think, oh, this is a trusted site kind of, right? Right. And it would be also <clears throat> if you're watching traffic, if you start seeing stuff go up to Dropbox, that's normal traffic. That's that, that's expected yep. as well. A lot of expected things that you would just yeah. not pay a lot of attention to just accept. You know, HR people are kind of getting to the point of expecting people's resumes to possibly be on Dropbox, right? Sure. Absolutely. I would think so. 
Uh, so the, the other thing, the graphic you were just showing there is apparently the boot sector encryption is fairly simple. They're actually just doing Zor encryption with the value 0x37, which is just the ASCII code for the number 7. So they're just encrypting your master boot record with the number 7. But the issue isn't necessarily the master boot record so much right. as the data on the drive that is then encrypted right. once it... Uh, and it turns out, they, then they separate, uh, it seems maybe... To be faster, instead of encrypting individual files, they encrypt the master file table of the NTFS uh, <laughs> thing, because that's only a couple hundred megabytes. Yeah, I noticed in that video it goes very fast. Every file. Yeah, because it's only a couple hundred megabytes, but it will block access to every file. Now, some recovery software might be able to find, yeah, you know, oh, look, so. I found a whole JPEG, right. but it won't know the file names or anything. Yeah, with, uh, yeah boy. And apparently the key is a little more complicated. They're not just Zoring with 7, the uh, ma uh, master file table. So it's not like you can just recover easily. But uh, there's a bunch of links in the show notes if you want to see more about how it actually works internally. Yeah, you know, the chat room's talking about right now about how so many folks have UAC disabled as just a matter of course. Regular folks I at home, offices. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I, like I wouldn't recommend it. No, I, I definitely wouldn't recommend it. But, uh, you know, in my time I, of doing I IT do support, I saw it a lot. I do have it set so that um, it doesn't do the whole black the screen and switch to a oh, different yeah. desktop yeah. first. Gosh, yeah, it, yeah. But it does not run it until you approve I it. So. You know, I I recall most most commonly it was software compatibility that caused people to disable it, and then secondarily it was the issue of sometimes the UAC prompt would hide behind active windows. You well, see, the, now that was the whole point of UAC being captive. It jumps to the front and right. blacks out and won't let you interact with anything else until you answer it. That's but have you the seen the annoying, but have you seen the behavior where it actually fails? Even when you have it still enabled, have you seen the behavior where it fails to actually black out the whole screen and applicate yeah. like I, it especially happens a lot during installation of really old applications where uh, you, the UAC prompt fails to come in front of the installer so the installer well, hangs. In like Windows 8 it goes to a different desktop environment. Yeah, now I'm not so it's sure if it's I'm I'm more referring my experience would be more in Windows 7. Um, so I'm not so sure about eight, but that was, so, but what my point was is in my day, that was the reason why people disabled it a lot was because there would be like, uh, internet explorer, uh, functions that would need to install something in the background every time they loaded and the UAC prompt being in the background, even though they could have just tabbed over to it, the UAC prompt being in the background and the user not knowing was enough for them to just disable it altogether. I think that's pretty common. All right. Well, any other thoughts on that particular story, Mr. Dude? Nope. Well, then let me tell you about my friends that if I did know about back when I was in contracting, they would have been my go-to hardware provider. That's our friends at IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap to support this show and learn more about IX Systems and get their white paper. That's been They commissioned that, and it is well put together. IX Systems is the go-to provider for ultimate hardware solutions powered by Intel processors for your open-source workload all kinds of things. Check them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Complete range of stuff. Uh, you know, even able to get the, there's only like two models of E3 Xeon that have the video card built in, and they were able to get the one I needed. You know, uh, when we come back, we should know, because it's only like five days until the new uh, FreeNAS is revealed. Yeah, so when we, can, when we come back, we'll, we'll know more about that. I wonder if I'll have mine on order. No, I kid. <laughs> uh, if you check out the BSD Now episode next week, will it be in time? Yes. yes. What about it? You, uh, uh, what? May, may, maybe there will be a thing. So you mean you've already talked to them and you already know? 
It's embargoed. I can't talk about but it. But you already know, and you know that I want to know super bad. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just saying there might be a special feature on the show next cool, week. Cool, that's awesome. Check it out. So I am really, obviously, guys, you guys can tell, I am genuinely and truly excited about iX Systems products. They And part of it is, yeah, it's the great hardware and the really good decisions they've made with their partnerships, like with Intel and, and other hardware providers, but it's also the bench. They have the best crew I have ever seen from a hardware company. Folks genuinely connected and in the software industry, in the hardware industry, in the customer service industry, people... People who have genuine vision and people who are brilliant work at iX Systems and really people who are great with community and extremely lovely too. A great cast of characters, a great company, and a great place for you to get your future hardware. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go check them out. And you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Asia BSDCon. Just a reminder, we've mentioned it before, but they do have a recap uh, where you can find some pictures of our own Mr. Alan Jude on their blog. You can check him out. You oh, go to iXSystems.com. This is uh, that picture with me. There is uh, the standing dinner we had. Is that orange and, juice he's drinking? Oh, a standing uh, dinner, huh? Yes. Uh, it promotes you to mill around and talk to people. Yeah, no kidding. Of just with a couple of people you happen to sit down with. I like that idea yes. a lot. Um, and uh, it was great. Yeah, we were talking about file system stuff there, and it was uh, shoot, I'm a bunch of famous BSD people and me. <laughs> Isn't that? <laughs> Oh, don't kid, Alan. Uh, it's getting pretty. It's getting. Uh, you are getting pretty well known out there in the BSD space. So and so is I. Yeah, but I didn't and, invent a file system or anything. No, no, no. But you do. Uh, you do talk about it quite a bit. I, I don't run NetBSD like manage the whole NetBSD project. Right? Yeah, although there's not a lot of file systems that have a public <coughs> figure who sort of promote it and talk about it a lot. So ZFS does have that going for it. Uh, and IX Systems is that. A, that the, that yeah. guy was UFS, not ZFS. I was talking about you. I was talking about uh, you. I didn't invent anything. No, I. Never mind. You can watch this back some of the time and you'll get one. It was a compliment. You'll pick it up. You'll, uh, you'll try. Yeah. slash techsnap. Thanks to IX. You humble they, for your compliment. They were out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. At least while you're on there. Uh, IXSystems.com. Thank you, IX. And uh, thanks for giving me a chance to poke some fun at Alan here. Uh, yes. um, so, Alan, let's move on to our next story. Uh, I love this one, because whenever you can make it something about USB and self-replicating, it just sounds like it could be a heyday of fun. This one's not self-replicating. Oh, come on. Let's make it self-replicating. This one's the opposite. (laughs) Okay, good. Tell me about it. So researchers at ESET, uh, which is an antivirus vendor, have identified a new Trojan being spread on USB sticks called USB Thief. Uh, What makes this malware so unique is how it protects itself from analysis by researchers. Okay. Uh, each instance of the Trojan relies on the particular USB device on which it is installed and leaves no evidence on the compromised system. Moreover, it uses a very special mechanism to protect itself from being reproduced or copied, which makes it even harder to detect. So the Trojan self-modifies based on the particular storage medium of that it is like, on? Like the USB device ID of the USB right. stick. Like it and incorporates it into itself yeah. somehow? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of hashing that happens. And oh, so sure. if you okay. copy the virus off the USB stick to a different USB stick or into a VM to try to analyze it, yeah. it will not work. Because the device the idea changed. the opposite of self-replicating. I see. It refuses to allow itself to be replicated. This is something Only that... the bad guy can set it up properly on individual USB sticks. I, I already know who would want something like spread. this. It's, it's obvious who would create something like this. Okay. Well, so imagine... Stuxnet, but it wouldn't ever accidentally yeah. get out of control. Researchers and go could to never the wrong place. Researchers could never analyze it. It wouldn't necessarily right, spread it's, it's to the more wrong. That it wouldn't accidentally spread right. further than you intended. Right. Hmm. And Jeez, then become scary. public. That's scary. Yes. 
Uh, so it depends on the increasingly common practice of storing portable versions of applications such as Firefox or Notepad++ or TrueCrypt on USB drive. The malware takes advantage of this trend by inserting itself into the command line chain of the portable applications in the form of a plugin or a DLL. Hmm. And therefore, whenever such an application is executed, the malware will be run in the background as part of it, the application. So the malware consists of six separate files. Four of them are executables, and the other two contain configuration data. To protect itself from copying or reverse engineering, the malware uses two techniques. First, the, uh, most of the individual files are AES-128 encrypted. Secondly, their file names are generated from, the crypt, uh, from cryptographic hashes from the device. So the AES encryption key is computed from the unique USB hardware ID, which is unique for every different USB device, and certain properties of the disk, like the what file system and how big it is and that kind of thing. Hence, the malware can only run successfully on that one particular USB device, and copying it anywhere else means the encryption key changes, which means parts of the malware won't decrypt and they won't run, and they won't be able to be analyzed. It'll just be random data. So when the researchers copied it into a VM to try to dissect it and see what happens, uh, it just doesn't work because it doesn't decrypt properly. I'm looking at this, Alan, uh, in here, and they talk about... uh but they don't actually come out and say who would want this, but I have an idea of who I think would create something like this. Do you have a speculation before I, or I don't want to spill the beans. Well, like I just said, uh, if you wanted to build the next Stuxnet but didn't want it to spread accidentally. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that too. Uh, but I mean, also, uh, I, could, I could see it not just for, uh, not just for that, but uh, also, and maybe, make, maybe I'm making the wrong parallel here, but I just re- read an article this morning about, uh, you remember those stingrays we've talked about quite a bit in this show? Yep. Uh, those, just for those of you who aren't familiar, are uh, kits that the FBI and law, and not just the FBI, but other law enforcement agencies can use to set up a temporary cell phone tower, pick up everybody's UUIDs and, and you know, get, get some of their information, their GPS location, and then shut it down. And they will often, like, uh, force phones down to a lower-grade cellular connection. Be, or but, not encrypted at all, yeah. if they can. And, um... They've been doing this for a long time, and they've been keeping it secret. And the article I read today says that in many cases now, many cases, when it comes time for how did you get this record, how did you get that information, how did you get that evidence, and the answer is Stingray, they're just opting to drop the case and let the criminal go free so they don't have to reveal their means and methods. And when I look at this, I also think I could see a future now where you have, we, today, in the United States, we now live in a country where the FBI has purchased software to unlock and, and break encryption on iPhones. They are now approving 100 iPhones to be unlocked, and one of them being an iPhone 6, so apparently it's more advanced than we realized. We now live in a country where the FBI, uh, we've talked about how the government is one of the biggest purchasers of black market malware, right? We've talked about how the NSA sometimes holds zero days back from companies so they can use them. I could very clearly see law enforcement officials abusing something like this to keep the fact that they're using malware to penetrate people's computers and whatnot confidential and private from the press. So it's not just state actors that I'm worried about. I'm also now getting more worried about just law enforcement officials. Right. That seems to be where, I mean, the government use of this seems to be way far and above than your, your... Typical private citizen hacker, in my in my opinion. Uh, any other thoughts on this? Um, 
Yeah, there's more. So uh, they said the researchers said it was quite challenging to analyze the malware because they had no access to an actual malicious USB device, right? All they had was the copies of the files that that the person who got infected sent to them as like malware mm-hmm. samples, and those were not usable. Um, they say moreover they had no dropper, the thing that actually infects a USB stick, and so they couldn't uh, create their own infected USB drive under controlled conditions to analyze how it worked. All they had was the submitted files being analyzed and, you know, trying to brute force every possible unique device ID and combination of USB disk properties to actually be able to decrypt it just wasn't working. Even once they uh, got a hold of the original device and were able to successfully decrypt the malware files, they had to find out which order they run in, right? Because there's four separate files that all chain together and how, you know, how, which order they go in to get that to work. Mm. And then mm. how, what do you have to put in these configuration files and... Because the process of copying the files modifies the file creation timestamp on the files, and that would change the hashes on them. They didn't realize this, and, you know, had to use a special tool to, to copy the file and preserve the modification times. Huh. Is it, uh, the, finally, the payload that's actually in the malware, which we haven't talked about yet, uh, implements the actual data stealing functionality. Uh, it execute uh, the executable is injected into a newly created uh, SVC host service, so it pretends to be part of the Windows operating system. Uh, the configuration data includes information on what data should be gathered, uh, how that should be encrypted, and where they should be stored. Hmm. The output destination must always be on the same removal device, the USB stick. Uh, in the cases we analyzed, it was configured to steal all data files such as images or documents, and the entire Windows registry uh, tree. Uh, for current uh, HKCU, which is current user, um, so that they could find whatever they wanted about the machine, right? Uh, file lists from all of the drives and uh, information gathered using the uh, an imported open source application called WinAudit to get as much information as they could about the machines that was plugged into. All that data is then encrypted and uh, using elliptic curve cryptography and then stored on the USB device. So it definitely seems like this is the kind of device where an intelligence agency sets it up, gives it to their agent, who just goes into the air gap network and plugs it in. And then eventually returns the USB stick to the intelligence agency, and they can then decrypt all their files and make out with their so, ill-gotten gains. This is, a, this is a pretty cool little trick. And I could yep. see the, the only way you could really sort of work around this is if you were hip to how this thing works and then you could modify it to work off of either a different device ID, right? Or if, cause I'm trying to think of like, if you wanted, if the, if you wanted to actually, if you could find this and you wanted to say, take it or steal it and use it for your own purposes, like some have claimed people are doing with some code from Stuxnet, um, how would you do that? Well, you would have to be able to figure out how to deconstruct this ID process. That's well, it. Yeah. In general, what you would really want is a copy of the dropper program that actually infects a USB sure, stick, so sure. you can just generate your oh, own. Oh, man, no yeah. kidding, right? Yeah, but of course, that's not what's going to be at the destination where you're likely to find yeah. it and deconstruct yeah. it. So that <laughs> Wow. It's getting sophisticated. I like it. And I'm just yep. thinking, like, you, I suppose your, your best bet would be to modify the program code, source code yeah. yourself. They say, uh, in addition to the interesting concept of the self-protection multi-stage malware, and the relatively simple data stealing payload is very powerful, especially since it doesn't leave any evidence on the infected computer, since it saves everything to the USB stick. Uh, after the USB device is removed, nobody can find out that data was stolen, or let alone you know, what data. Uh, also, it would not be difficult to redesign the malware to change from a data stealing payload to any other malicious payload. So, like what else? But what else from a should be anything, you know? 
you could do a crypto locker type thing, although that doesn't make sense in this particular case. Uh, but, you know. Mm, I, I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. <clears throat> it just means that the payload could be swapped to do anything that you would want malware to do. Huh. <clears throat> but, you know, just goes to show, if, if you're serious about security, you might consider physically disabling the USB ports on your systems. Right. You know, if this is a secure system that only certain people are supposed to have access to. Now, I understand that in some of those, the sneaker net of USB stick or whatever is the only way to move data between the air gap computers. Right? Remember when we heard about the um, NATO facilities for the Canadian Navy still use floppy disks because they're super secure computers or old? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I understand USB stick, but then you have to make sure that you're always using you know, the known good USB sticks that haven't been compromised. You know, that might be the way to do it, right? And you could see a government agency that'd be willing to just treat USB sticks as burners. Yeah. Uh, you, you kind of wonder if you could, like, program the BIOS or something, like, uh, buy a customly modified uh, USB host controller that will only accept certain device IDs. Mm. And mm. so only, like, this one, <laughs> you buy these thousand USB sticks, yeah. and only these USB sticks will work in this USB port. Like, no other USB devices will even connect. Huh. Of course, then, how you know, now that keyboards and mice and everything are USB, it makes it yeah. very difficult to have a computer where you can't use any of the USB. And to be ports. honestly, sometimes internal components on the motherboards are actually connected to the USB bus. Sometimes yeah. Ethernet comes in over USB on some of these things. It's just usually only on like a Raspberry. or sound. Yeah, no, but on some computers, on some on like some of the Ultrabooks and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, those ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or some of the tablets. I mean, it's just the just yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, Alan, this is a good one. <laughs> I like this one. This one makes you think, and those are always the most fun. Hmm. I want. It makes me think of what they would use the t- what the different payloads, other than yep. just yeah. Basically, any malware you want. It's yeah. just they're using a data stealer because what they want is to steal data. Whew. Nice one. All right, Alan. Well, good. Okay. Any other thoughts on that particular story? Any more on that, sir? Uh, nope, that's it for that one. All right, well, then I'll mention DigitalOcean, the next sponsor here on the TechSnap program. Use our promo code SNAPOcean, that's one word, lowercase, to get yourself a $10 credit. Now, this is why you're going to want a $10 credit, because their pricing is unbelievable. It starts at $5 a month. In less than 55 seconds, you'll have this rig up and running with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one blazing fast CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And their pro- their pricing plans are structured really, really simply. In fact, if you want to try out uh, a really nice, powerful rig, just have at it and use our promo code SNAPOcean, and they'll also just treat it hourly. So you can just try it out for a few hours for testing or experimenting. They have a very simple and intuitive interface. So whether you're an expert, and I really mean that, or if you're an absolute beginner, Honestly, you're going to find this to be very usable. They have one-click deployment of a ton of different great applications and technology stacks. They have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Toronto. They have them over in London, Germany. Toronto is a a pretty cool one. Uh, They have some pictures on it. It's one of the newest ones. Yeah. Uh, but, Although there's a newer one coming, right? Yes. Uh, India. Yes, in India. Uh, so, you know, one of the really great things besides DigitalOcean is, and their perfect, really wonderful, uh, unbelievably good web app interface, which not only do I just find it to be, I, if that was a desktop application, that would be a good interface. It's a good interface in a web application. That's a huge yeah. deal. That is, they, did, they did a lot of work on that. Yeah, and they continue to make it better. And then, like, at, at Unbelievable. Like, you'd think their API would be a, like a total second class kind of a suck fest if they work so hard on the UI. No, they've got a great, straightforward API. There's tons of good open source code written you can use or plug in with libraries right now. 
Good to go. Also, this is how hip this is how hip DigitalOcean is. There's already Let's Encrypt tutorials for Ubuntu 16.04, which is like not even out yet. Yeah, it's not April yet. <laughs> There's already a Let's Encrypt. Now, you know like day of on an LTS 16.04 is going to be on like DigitalOcean or like a day after, no doubt. And the the reason why DigitalOcean has some of the best tutorials and and really fresh content like this is they work with really clever community members, and if they write up a good piece, they're going to pay them for it. And then they've got full-time editors, who technical writers, who go through, clean this stuff up, format it for you, so they can get it online. So by the time the Ubuntu LTS 1604 images are available, they're going to have great documentation, and they're already building it out. They got stuff for FreeBSD. They got it for all the different distros they support. Check it out at DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean, and go deploy FreeBSD and play with a jail just for Alan. Yep. Just for Alan. Because you know what? Docker's old news. DigitalOcean.com. Well, except for all of you who are using it. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And thanks, DigitalOcean. So tell me about these uh, six folks that were recently charged. Uh, this sounds like uh, almost a movie. Is this a yeah, movie? This is, well, this is uh, you know, bad computer design, really. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so uh, prosecutors in Connecticut say that a group of uh, store owners and employees uh, conspired to manipulate the automated ticket dispensing machines for the five-card cash uh, instant lottery system in Connecticut. That does sound tempting. Yeah. Uh, so basically, according to the Hartford uh, Current newspaper, uh, a group of shop owners and employees set up the machines uh, to process a flood of tickets all at once, which caused a temporary display, uh, display freeze on the computer. And then they would use that to decide which tickets would be our winning ones because it's an instant win type thing. Uh, and so they would cancel the tickets that didn't win and never mm. actually issue them or have to pay for them and only print out a bunch of winning tickets Clever. and then cash them in. All right. <laughs> Sounds like a winning strategy. <clears throat> they say, uh, while those reports are being uh, processed, the operator could enter sales for the five-card cash tickets and then cause that. So before the tickets would print, the operator could see on the screen if the ticket was a winner or not and then just cancel all the ones that weren't. <laughs> You know what? I gotta, uh, I gotta go get on this action before they. Uh, there's got to be other places I can do this at. This is a good action, Al. The the current newspaper says that the lottery commission uh, wised up to the scheme in back in November when it heard that people were winning the five card cash game at a higher than expected rate oh. at this particular store. Oh dang it! So the game was actually temporarily halted. They stopped selling the tickets. Uh, <sighs> And then the, the paper then goes on to note that uh, more arrests are expected uh, because it wasn't just these five people doing it or six people that got arrested so far that were doing it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, we had kind of similar problems with the lottery here uh, where I live. And uh, they did a couple of things. Specifically, uh, on the machines, if you work at the store uh, and are buying the ticket for yourself, you have to go through a bunch of extra screens and and... You know, it definitely notes that hey, this ticket is being sold to someone who is running the machine, mm. not to a customer. Uh, and you know, extra protections happen there. Uh, and so, I know a lot of people. If you work at a store, you go and buy your ticket somewhere else. If you're into the huh. lottery, because you you know you don't want the extra eyeballs on you if you happen to win, right? Mm, no kidding. Um, <clears throat> so the other uh, common lottery crime that was happening here. Uh, was replacing a customer's large payout winning ticket with a smaller one. So as the employee at the store, you would buy a bunch of tickets and keep you know the ones that won like $10, right? 
And then when somebody comes in with a ticket, uh, they want to—they don't know if they want or want if they want to run it through the machine. Uh, and you figure out that they won a hundred dollars. Uh, you scan the ten-dollar ticket, uh, and you're like, "Oh, yep, you won. Here's your ten dollars." <laughs> Uh, and then once they leave, you cash it and you keep your hundred dollars. Mm. But eventually, uh, you know, that only works for the smaller payouts because they don't have to collect the ID of the uh, the person who won. You know, with bigger payouts, you have to go to the lottery people and and you know they would notice that hey, you've won the lottery a lot recently. That seems unusual, right? Uh, so now it's commonplace for there to be automated lottery checking machines. So, uh, you know, you instead of you know, going to the cashier and being like, here, can you check these tickets? They put it a, a separate machine off to the side where you can check if you won or not. Uh, partly so that, you know, you're not waiting in line behind some old lady with like 80 lottery tickets, right? Um, but also so that you can check and only you or, you know, nobody can be interfering with the machine that way. Also, uh, when you do scan the ticket uh, on the actual machine that sells them or whatever, uh, it plays a noise uh, if you win. Like it plays a little song and yells winner. <laughs> uh, which, you know, if you happen to be staying around the store for a while or happen to work in it, that noise gets really annoying. Yeah. It's like, winner, Kanye, ding, 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 <laughs> every 20 minutes or whatever. It's like uh, becomes nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. But it means that if you're the customer and they scan the ticket and it makes this noise and they try to tell you you didn't win, you're like, bullshit, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of how it works now. Uh, so it seems like, you know, these individual state lotteries haven't uh, collaborated and, re- and, and caught on to the different scams that each one has developed mitigations against. There's money so. to be made when that's the case, Alan. There's always money in that gap yep. to be made. <laughs> well, so what you should do is sell better lottery machines to the Connecticut State Lottery. There, that's the other. That's the legit money to be made. Right. Yep. That would be the legit money. Didn't even think of that for some reason. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's well, yeah. not a very, you know, legit person by that. No, I know. It's just, if I was, if I wasn't, I would just, you know what it is, Alan, is I fantasize sometimes when we do these stories. I'm like, geez, that would be fun. I could see, I could see too. Like when you see it, you're like, oh, that's obvious. And you right. read it back and when you break it down, you're like, oh, yeah, I could, I, I, boy, I could almost pull that off. And then, and then you sit here and go, hmm, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. Never? That's never appealed to you? Oh, one time. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you a story sometimes. <laughs> we covered right. part of it on TechSnap. Yeah, yeah. We didn't yeah. cover the part that would have happened if I decided not to cover it on TechSnap. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, the part then where you wouldn't have been able to talk about it in public. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if, if instead of taking the small bug bounty, I had cashed out on it, I had a lot more zeros on the number. It's true. It's true. Well, maybe in an alternate reality, but in this reality... Like, I couldn't perfect how to do it without getting caught. Well, there's that. That is always the problem. You can, yeah. You, you, yeah. <laughs> and so it made more sense to take the bug bounty. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know what I do? If I want to if I want to make it rich, I try saving money by switching to Ting. There you go. Boom. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Saving money is the best way to get rich. It, it It's mobile that makes sense because you only pay for what you use. You don't get some crazy like, well, I might use these many minutes and I might need this much data. Or if I only use these providers that are free or if I can roll over this this month, then maybe I won't go. No, it's too confusing. It's too annoying. How about this? Pay for what you use. Flat $6 for the line, your minutes, your messages, your megabytes. That's it. Average Ting bill is $23 per line. Often, mine is less than that. I, but with three devices now, I have three devices on my Ting line. Mm, it's sometimes around $35, $40 bucks at the most. It's really nice. And then every now and then I fire up a MiFi device. Maybe I have a little bit extra that month, but 
10 months out of the year, I don't. I mean, I love the way Ting works. It feels really legitimate, too, because all the devices are unlocked, so you own them outright. They're your devices. There's no contract. There's no early termination fee. You just pay for what you use. And you can get the SIM card, pop in any device you want. They got two networks you get to choose from, CDMA or GSM. I mean, you stack all this up, and it's kind of like unbelievable. There's an unbelievable amount of control that you have. You, when you're not using a phone, you turn it off. They have a great dashboard, and they have fanatical customer service. They'll get, get a hold of you and work with you. It is really a winner. Go check out some of the great devices they have, too. There's a range right now, and i got a couple of really nice budget devices I want to mention. Uh, these are great for family members, friends, or if you need a line yourself. Check out like this one here. The Ansatel OneTouch Fling is back at Ting. It's a $63 feature phone with a nice uh, OLED clock on the front, good, clean design, 63 bucks. Pay for what you use. All right, so that's like on the uh, that's like on the on the lower end there. How about this? They got a refurbed Nexus Five, a great phone, hundred and ninety bucks. You can get Marshmallow on that thing. You'll get updates from the Googs directly. They got also the uh, the six P. You can order the five X directly from Google and put it on Ting. They got the uh, Samsung Galaxy devices, the internet phones, and of course they have the LG Volt Two, which is great because that's a nice budget phone that's getting a Marshmallow update soon. Check them out at techsnap.ting.com. Try out their savings calculator, techsnap.ting.com. A no BS mobile service provider, which is perfect for our audience. You guys are sick mm -hmm. of the BS. So is Ting. That's what they're up to, techsnap.ting.com. Thank you, Ting. All right, Alan. So it's not necessarily a free NAS scoop this week, but we do have ourselves a new episode of the BSD Now program, a 135er. What is this one about? Yeah. Uh, it's an interview with uh, Michael W. Lucas about his new book about specialty file systems. Huh. So if you want to learn about all the weird file systems like DevFS and MQFS and, you know, what, what is this other thing over here? Right. How does, how does LinProcFS work on BSD <laughs> and LinSysFS and all the different uh, specialty or, you know, there are, like four different ways, there are four different ways to do RAM disks on BSD. Which one should you use when? That is... A great reference to even just own, even if you don't read the whole thing yeah. uh, from cover to cover. It's a great well, one. Well, it, it's it's a smaller one. It's uh, about the same size as the uh, well, smaller than the ZFS book. Uh, and you know, it's nine ninety nine, and you can get it as an ebook or get it in print. And huh. Well, there you yeah. go. You've also you I guys uh, also cover the new OpenBSD release, the Linux Secrets yep. Guide on installing FreeBSD in an Easy Jail on top yep. of Linux, plus the interview and what? the not on top of Linux. Oh, I thought that's what it said. Plus yeah. the interview and a why OpenBSD segment, huh? Yes, uh, a user wrote in and explained why they use OpenBSD. Check and, it out. You know, something people ask a lot. Why would someone do that? Well, here's somebody's answer. Does this match up with what you want? Then maybe that's what you want. Get it all in episode 135 of your BSD Now <coughs> program. Go check it out with a download. Get the HD version. That way, when we're all done with TechSnap, you can go get more Jude in your face in the best definitions possible. Just find it over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or maybe you started a thread at our subreddit. Hmm, perhaps. Our first email this week comes in from Ryan, and Ryan is writing in about mail backup. Every so often, you've suggested using DigitalOcean to host a backup mail server. I looked into the proper way to do this and uncovered articles stating that this idea is bad, since, according to the articles, 
Spammers will look at your MX records and send mail to the second one thinking you have less filtering on the backup. Taking that into consideration, what is the proper way to configure a backup mail server? Should I deploy the backup just like the primary with all the same spam filters and such? Or is there a way for the backup server to accept the queue uh, to accept and queue all messages when the primary server is back online? Is, uh, and uh, it uh, and it does the filtering. So that's the first part, and then he's got a second part. But yeah, we'll answer the first one first. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely not a bad idea to change what you do just because of spammers. Uh, but ideally, yes, you want to do the filtering on the backup as well. Um, so you can reject the email at uh, when the person trying to send it is connected to you instead of in later generating a bounce email because on. Uh, spam that's spoofed, you'll send the bounce back to the person that didn't send it, and then you're just causing more spam. Um, but in general, yes, the whole point of a backup mail server is what it will do is queue up all the mail uh, that normally would be sent to your primary when your primary is down, and then when the primary is back up, it'll send it to it. The problem is that it will accept email even when the primary is not down, and the spammers will try to do that. But as long as you set up the filtering on your uh, backup server as well, or at least right. some spam filtering. Like I just use Spam Assassin, and if it has a high rating, the backup rejects it, and that stops the majority of the problems. Right? Because usually about, spam is obviously spam. What about using something like you know MailRoute that it, instead of having a complete separate backup mail server, you actually have MailRoute be your primary mail destination, and when your server goes offline, MailRoute just queues it and then and then forwards right. it once your mail server is back online. You can get similar servers from DNS Media. Yeah, and yeah, other right. Yep. Uh, you can do that, but then there's the, they're just running a primary and a backup, and then only sending to you, and your mail server just kind of hidden. And while that right. stops you from having to deal with some of the spam, you know that that is, that's an option to have a backup mail server, but. I don't know what you but I only trust myself with my email. Yeah, that is the nice I thing about. I don't yeah. want other people having my email and being able to maybe read it or being subpoenaed into providing copies. Right. They're in a very trusted position in that setup, so that's a big consideration. Yeah, but you know, uh, that is a, a decent one, and if if you don't want to have to worry about it, that's a good way to do it. All right, well, so Kobe writes in with our, our next email. He says, hello there. Oh, wait, no, sorry. He had a second part of his... I almost forgot about the second part of his question. I'm oh, such yeah. a jerk. All right, so Ryan's second part of the question says, speaking of mail servers, how would you recommend replicating a mailder offsite in near real time? The mail server is on a DigitalOcean FreeBSD droplet, and the des destination is at home. Uh, we, he's got a nice, uh, fast one gig uh, connection, though. Can I do any kind of ZFS replication from a droplet? I'd be afraid to do a cronned rsync in the event that the mail disappears off the server. Uh, it would mirror so on the backup. Any suggestions well, in this regard? You have a couple of options there. If you do rsync, you can tell it never to delete files. Uh, then any emails you delete off the main server don't get deleted from the backup, which can be kind of annoying when all your spam you deleted shows back up if you have to restore it from a backup. Uh, but it does mean that... Uh, so ideally, um, you, yes, you can use ZFS replication, although... You know, your droplet probably doesn't have very much RAM, and maybe you don't want to use ZFS in the droplet. So then your other option is rsyncing from the droplet to your house, but at your house having it be a ZFS data set with snapshots. So if something goes wrong and hmm. rsync deletes all the files, yeah. the snapshots still contain the files like from that. 15 minutes before they got deleted or whatever. And then you can have the archive. And it's nice that way because then you're building up this archive of snapshots and times of your email folder, and... It's you're doing that on ZFS at your house where you have lots of storage and not having to worry about it on DigitalOcean where you know you have a smaller SSD. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, rsync can work well for that. ZFS propagation is better because you spend, you know, if uh, especially if you're doing Mailder where you have a separate file for each email, if you have 100,000 emails, then that's that much more time it takes for every rsync, whereas ZFS would be faster at it. But, uh, you know, if your DigitalOcean droplet doesn't have a lot of RAM, maybe ZFS isn't the best option. But it is an option, so mm. uh, you could do it either way. Uh, okay, thank you. Good questions, Ryan. Uh, so ZFS solves the problem. It just you don't have to have ZFS at both sides to actually solve the problem. It's better if you do, mm. but it's not a requirement. Mm-hmm. So Kobe writes in uh, with a with an interesting copy on write file system question. I suppose uh, for DB two specifically. Hello there. We currently have a four terabyte DB two database running on some extended four volumes. The inconveniences that we currently face are, one, backups take a very long time, which thankfully doesn't impact applications. Two, refresh of our test systems takes a very long time, too, to restore a version of production to multiple test servers. And three, our current DR dataset follows the master database asynchronously, but... Uh, but very near real-time, which could be problematic if something uh, destructing initiates on the master database. If we were to migrate this DB2 database to a copy-on-write file system, could I create a backup of this database by creating a file system snapshot, which would be very fast? that, That would create a snapshot, which isn't a backup, but it would be an exact copy of what the file looked like at one moment in time, which you can then take your backup from. The advantage of this is if you're backing up that database file while it's live, your copy of the first half of the file is going to be of an older version of the database than the end of the file, and you can actually end up with inconsistencies and your restored file won't work. So, yes, snapshots are instant and allow you to have a safe file that you can take a backup of. So that is definitely the way you want to go, but remember that just having the snapshot isn't a backup. So he asked, so uh, kind of along those lines, could I copy or clone this uh, backup or incremental to a recovery copy on right file system in a different data center? Yes. So then what you can do, uh, so you can clone, which basically makes a, it takes the snapshot as the base of a new file system that's actually writable. So it makes a new file system that doesn't use any of the space for any files that are the same as the old one. Um, Clones are only local, though. But then, yes, you could then replicate. uh, So if you replicate the database to your test server and then clone that, and use that clone uh, for your dev environment, later on, you could rep- do an incremental replication to only what's changed in the last two weeks uh, replicated to your dev environment, and then clone that for your dev environment, and now your database is up to date, and it only took 20 minutes instead of the hours it would take to restore the full database over again. He's got questions too, like how could he know how much storage <clears throat> he's going to need? So for example, he's got a four terabyte uh, yeah. data set here, and he wants to make 24-hour snapshots, a snapshot every every hour for 24 hours. Is there any way he could do the maths on how much storage? It really depends on how much is being written. Like, how much of the data is actually changing out yeah, of right. four terabytes each right. day. Exactly. Uh, once you have it set up on ZFS, when you do the first snapshot, uh, the snapshot will grow by the size of the change. And so... But there's not really a way to predict unless you know exactly how much new data is being written to the database and how much data is being overwritten. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so our next email comes in from Jeremy. And Jeremy has a question. Maybe it's more on the philosophical side in some ways. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. I thought this would make for an interesting discussion as there is a debate online right now. It's getting hot, Alan. Over when to restart a server after an update. So one issues a yum update or an app get update or a FreeBSD update fetch install, whatever, and pulls down a whole bunch of updates. 
system downloads and updates itself. A raging debate is over when one should do the actual rebooting. Some think uh, some things are agreed on, like when a kernel or you know a glibc is updated. Uh, still, uh, say when something like OpenSSL, Python, PHP, Nginx, or MySQL, etc., gets a patch, you should reboot. Of course, one could just restart specific services in those cases. Uh, I noticed one guy that runs yum update, yum update every day via cron, and then on the weekend reboots via cron. Now I understand there are technologies like Kspice uh, for hot kernel patching, as well as restarting production servers, so you don't, so you don't have to restart your production server. So, in your opinion, when is it a good idea to restart a server after an update, and when is it okay to let it just keep on running and avoid the dreaded reboot? He wants that uptime. Plus, thoughts on handling this automatic versus manual. Yep. Uh, so, there's a couple things. Um, FreeBSD update will actually tell you whether you need to reboot at the end. Uh, because, in general, only if it's the kernel do you need to reboot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Otherwise, you can just restart the applications. So, um, do we, so if in the event, like, so he points out, like OpenSSL. Let's say you have a vulnerable version so, of OpenSSL, and these applications right. so maybe have it in memory. It, right, and you patch it. If you restart all the applications, but you have to restart all safe. of them. But yes, if you restart your nginx and your MySQL, and you forget that, oh, this other third application over here is also using SSL, and it's yeah. still going to be using the old one. You're like, oh shoot. So, uh, rebooting does help. Yeah. Uh, it's the best way to ensure that everything gets rebooted. Then again, in on a server in production. If you have a, but if you have a production system, you should have something set up in place so that rebooting isn't a big deal. Well, that's true. <laughs> right? Like, that's ideally, the real pro if level. It's your, if you're a big web server or whatever, you should be using like CARP or something. to ha- And there, there are two web servers so that you can take one down, reboot it, or, you know, upgrade it, reboot it, bring it back up, see what's there, flip the load back to it, run it for a while, see if it's okay. And if it's not, flip back to the, the secondary. And if it is, then you once once everything's stable on the primary, you can upgrade the secondary. Yeah. And you know, in most cases on a production server, if you restart the necessary services, and a lot of times applications spawn new instances over time and things like that, yeah. they'll just eventually so, pick up the new libraries. Yeah. And because the other thing is uh, there's a difference from what they did here. So they did yum update or apt-get update, mm-hmm. which update the operating system and the applications. But they only did FreeBSD update, fetch, install. So that will update the operating system, but it won't bring you newer versions of PHP, Nginx, or MySQL. You have to do package upgrade as well. So their instructions are missing hmm. the line there. Hmm. Uh, but in general, you should do as much as you can to make rebooting not a big deal. Uh, because while it's nice to have a machine with 2,000 days of uptime, it really is not valuable. The uh, in terms of graphical environments, like I, 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 my recollection, I've seen it a lot recently, if I recall too. The Ubuntu updaters, like on Ubuntu and uh, on some of those desktops, uh, the graphical updaters tell you when you need to reboot versus just do an update. Uh, so they specifically tell they can. So the, I usually would just if you're on a if you're on a desktop, just follow that recommendation. The big deal about uh, uptime is really just sort of bragging rights these days, I suppose. Well, because in, in general, you shouldn't be looking at the uptime of individual machine. But of the service that that machine provides, right. yeah, that's the way to look at it now. And you know, as long as you can keep the website up the whole time, mm-hmm. then that's fine. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, if you didn't hear your question asked, be sure to tune in next week. You might just hear it. And we want your question too. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com/slash/contact. Choose TechSnap from the dropdown and send us in your question, or email us directly, TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the emails all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap roundup.
Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links, a smattering, came from our highly technical subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. I had a fun one to share with you uh, this week. Uh, it's, it's called VNC Roulette, and it's at vncroulette.com. And just like in the spirit of chat roulette, it is random captures of people's VNC servers that are just opened up to the internet. Yep. And I saw control systems and all kinds of things. However, I went to share it with the audience today, Alan, and instead it turns out that it's been hacked. Uh, they have uh, they have like this animation up there by FatalSec, and it pretends like it's logging in as root to your computer. It gets the local time and date from your browser, and it plays this weird hip hop music that. Yeah, you don't want to play too much of that. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's not safe for work. So maybe check it out in a few days because uh, right now they're having a bad day. So I can't show you. But you get the idea. You just get to see a lot of really crazy, surprisingly odd things that are on the internet using VNC totally opened up and exposed. Um, okay, so we have a little update on, well, it's not really an update, but we have another story about Node.js this week, don't we? Yes. So this one is uh, based on the, you know, we kind of postulated that it might be possible to inject malicious packages into NPM because of the way it worked. And so somebody has figured out how to do it. Oh, uh, so good. the author uh, of a malicious package to inject other packages and propagate their malicious script across the entire NPM ecosystem and into the builds of legitimate projects. <laughs> uh, this is going to be an interesting um, um, can of worms that's been opened up. Yep. Uh, interestingly, I also saw a discussion about NPM being possibly taken over by the Node.js Foundation so that, uh, you know, currently it's just run by some people that set it up. Uh, and there seems to be interest in maybe having uh, it be more centrally controlled and have a, a static set of rules instead of just yeah. the people that run it decide, oh, we agree with the kick guys, not the original author or whatever. So uh, a, a more formal process for a bunch of stuff like that. Exactly. Oh, a uh, real-time follow-up from the chat room. Uh, it says the domain for uh, chat roulette was hacked, not the site itself. I guess the back end uh, is, uh, is, in, is in good shape. I wanted to get your thoughts on this next story in the roundup. Microsoft yesterday and today has been announcing a bunch of stuff at their build conference. Today, um, they announced they're open sourcing the mono runtime. Um, but the other thing yesterday that they announced that seems to be getting a lot of people talking is uh, they've released a Ubuntu-compatible subsystem for Windows 10. It's not emulation, yeah, so, even. Well, well, it kind of is. It's, well, it's not, it's not virtualization. Right. It's, yes. Right. Thank it's, you. It's like more like wine. It's the, well, no. It's actually the same as the FreeBSD or Solaris Linux compatibility layer. So what it does is it translates Linux system calls into Windows right. systems calls. Yeah. So it works the same way the Linux Linuxulator or the Linux Compat layer on FreeBSD works, which right. allows you to run Linux binaries on FreeBSD by converting it to FreeBSD system calls. So it's, yeah, what FreeBSD has been doing for like 15 years, and uh, SmartOS and then uh, did it for Solaris so that you could run Linux Docker containers on Solaris. Do you think it's about, do you think it's well, about... Well, I think the main reason for it is because they're going to support Docker, Docker on Windows, yeah. and the Docker containers happen to have Linux stuff in them. But, but the Docker, yeah, that's true. You know, it basically, it uh, gives them, instead of having to run Linux in Hyper-V, you can just, mm -hmm. but also, it, you know, I don't know about you, but I've had GNU Win32 installed on my Windows machine since, like, the early versions of XP, so I could have grep and sort and things like that at the command line that were the flags I was mostly used to. Mm -hmm. Now, GNU sort is terrible 
and doesn't have the same switches as BSD sort, and it drives me nuts all the time. But nobody ported the BSD ones. I think it's interesting that they quote unquote partnered with Canonical on this too. Well, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Well, because when we were at Linux Fest last year, they were all buddy buddy with Debian, mm-hmm. not Canonical. Mm-hmm. I remember it was like Debian. There was a big Debian cake. Mm-hmm. I just remember because they got free cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it is funny that they they kind of switched from Debian to Ubuntu, even though you know Ubuntu is Debian based, so it wasn't really a big thing for them. But I find I just I, I'm still processing the story from from your well, yeah. Well, you know, and we thought. Uh, Ubuntu and, and Canonical were pushing it with the ZFS uh, thing and, and right. licensing around that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas let, let's just put Linux on Windows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I, I'm sure there's some uh, GPL people that are uh, I think I'm gonna, having some thoughts about that. I'm going to read a lot of analysis on this and, and, and put some of my own thoughts together. We're gonna, Obviously, I'll talk more about it on Linux Action Show on Sunday because I'm still sort of chewing on it. And build's still but going really, on. Really, the right interesting now. thing is this leaves. OS ten as the only operating system without a Linux impact layer. Because Solaris has one, BSD has one, Linux obviously runs Linux binaries, and now Windows has one. It's hmm. interesting. Uh, what'll be interesting is also there's another similar thing called Cloud ABI, which hmm. basically pretends to be a different operating system, kind of like uh, so that you build these binaries and they're for this cloud ABI operating system that doesn't actually exist. And then they run as foreign binaries like the Linux ones do on BSD and Linux. And it's possible they might hmm. now be able to come to, to Windows. And you could have this one binary that would work on every operating system. Hmm. That would be pretty incredible. Or most of them, anyway. Yeah. And talk about the malware opportunities there, Alan, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, the point of Cloud ABI is that it has the capabilities uh, framework built into it. So the binaries can't do anything. Okay, okay. Okay, so this seems like to be... I'm, I'm not hearing a lot of coverage about this next story, but it kind of seems like a big deal in terms of hardware development. Uh, Intel's a pretty major player, and they are moving away from their TikTok development cycle, which was sort yeah, of... Yeah, you know, jokingly, I called the latest one uh, TikTok dong, because, <laughs> um, you know, they were TikTok, 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 and then, and then one time it was unexpectedly, it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, now they'll have to come up with a better name for the third thing. Yeah, like I've TikTok heard. Click or I've something. heard TikTok talk might be their new strategy. TikTok talk. Yeah, uh, and I guess it makes sense. Tick is the big jump, and then yeah. talk, and then it's yeah. another small talk. Uh, mostly, it'll just mean that each uh, like motherboard series will work for three generations of processors instead of two. Uh, so you know, we basically you will uh, groups of parts will stay compatible for longer. Uh, Although it does mean that the speed of improvement might go down. Um, hmm. You know, we're shrinking at a rate now that, you know, they've gotten so small, it's pretty hard to do stuff. Mm-hmm. I've got, uh, I so find, it's not unanticipated, basically. Yeah. I, you know, and I've got to say, I, I've really gotten to the point now where um, I found myself surprised by the fact that I'm, by like, until just very recently when I got a couple of new laptops from one crowdfund, one that was sent to me by Entraware. Um, and the IntroWare one is the Apollo, and it's Skylake. So it's like the, like that's the newest CPU I have. But everything else is like three years old at least. My one of my main workstations from two thousand nine. And what I what I'm reflecting on is there was a period of time where I was closely following every single Intel processor release, or even AMD. And uh, now, the processors for desktop workloads are really like, quite adequate. Now for other workloads, well, adequate, that, but for so other workloads, my Sandy Bridge is. 
runs a bit hot. And yeah, exactly. It's, and missing a couple features. They're getting to the point but now where I'm like, work. yeah, they're Sandy getting to the point like, right now. It's it's but it's it's enough generations old yes. that previously we would be like, exactly. How right. are you still using that? Right. And, you know, my Ivy Bridge laptop is going to be fine for quite a while. Even so. like even like like if you just put it in the industry time frame, like I'm saw XP to seven, like that transition. That was even back, it was that recent where we were like, you got to get a way better CPU. There's, like, there wasn't this big deal about going from 8 to 10 and everybody needing new computers. Remember what a big deal that was when Vista came out? And well, every... and, I don't, no, I, I completely skipped Vista. Well, yeah, because you were smart. But yeah, it but, was a huge um, deal. I think it's like the Core 2 Duos only ever had like two generations. And I think the Core 2 Duo line lasted a lot longer. So I think just... From Sandy Ridge on, we were just going a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And we're going to slow back down a bit. Yeah, and it's probably uh, about time, though. But, you know, it's uh, it's also nice that your hardware continues to work. Like, we have a bunch of Core 2 Quad servers at Scale Engine, and they're perfectly fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the main limitation we have is, is that the motherboard only holds up to 16 gigs of RAM. Yes, that is starting uh, to be And good. I think that's the limitation of the socket, even. Uh, yeah, I have, uh, I have an older Core 2 Duo machine. Or actually, I think it's a quad core. Same thing, though. I think it's got like a 16 gig rent or something really yeah. low. That's well, not and, enough. And so, the, like the Ivy Ridge and Haswell and so on, I uh, can do up to 32 gigs uh-huh. on a desktop instrument. Yeah. The Skylake ones can go up to 64, though. Ooh, there we go. Uh, but most people don't already have 32 gigs of RAM, so that's not really that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, uh, we'll watch. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually find out one way or another. Yeah. Uh, it's just I'm I'm glad that I don't have to replace a lot of my hardware. <laughs> so uh, I this one this one isn't really going to affect you, but there's a house bill floating around right now. The idea is to crack down on burner phones or really. Well, I love they like named the law like fixing the cell phone loophole or some. Like, so stupid. The law is called a really silly thing. First of all, I, this is dumb because uh, they'll just transition to encrypted applications that communicate over data. First of all, but second uh, of all, well, it won't be just that. I think. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so basically Congress is trying to pass a law that requires you to have ID to buy a burner phone, like a prepaid cell phone. Uh, you know, this likely fails to understand the entire issue. First of all, if I'm a criminal, I probably didn't actually go to the store and buy my phone because I didn't want to be on the videotape there, right? I just mm. sent some mule to buy the phones. So in the end, you're going to have some mule guy that's like four steps removed from the actual guy that ended up with the phone, Right. Uh, that whose name is on the government's list or whatever for that phone, and it'd be like, oh, nope, or oh, I had that phone, but it got stolen. It's stolen, yeah, stolen right. phones, yep. Which yeah. is a huge market. Yeah, and a bunch of things like that. Um, so it's probably not going to solve the problem. People are still going to find ways to to have a phone that isn't tied to their name. I wonder if you followed the, the money on this. Problem, who's behind this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the bigger problem is that what about people that have don't have ID or have problems with that and now won't be able to get a phone? Exactly. You know, for example, I don't drive, so I don't have a driver's license. You know, until I got my passport, it was actually annoyingly difficult to do anything that required Wow, I bet. ID. You know? Yeah, you and, have to and, have... Uh, chat room points out, you know, fake or stolen identities too, right? Yeah. If all they're looking for is a driver's license with a blurry picture or whatever, it's pretty easy to, to you know, get a fake driver's license to buy one of these burner phones. Yeah. And so they're not going to catch any bad guys with this, except for some maybe really dumb ones, uh, which aren't the ones that they're, you know, this is all about making sure terrorists don't use burner phones, right? Uh, they're not going to catch anybody like that. And all they're going to do is further cause problems for people that don't necessarily have ID. For so here's the name of it. It's called 
Closing the Prepaid Mobile Device Security Gap Act of 2016. And the article notes, in the wake of attacks in Europe, bills like this. Uh, may it be might as well be called the blowing it out your ass bill of 2016. Yeah, right? doing, doing nothing. Make it, literally doing nothing except attacking yeah. people who don't have ID, which yeah. tend to often be poor people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you know, so... It's, it's the same, basically... It's the same problem, you know, the voter ID laws have caused all these problems for people. It's like, well, now you're just going to do the same thing for basic access to a phone. Because, mm-hmm. you know, pay phones aren't really a thing anymore in most places. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, people don't why buy a landline, right? You're going to have a cell phone, a cheap prepaid. Burners are also parents. Well, you know, hey, we're going to go on a We're going on a trip. I want you to. I want us to be able to get a hold of you when you're out and about in town and you're visiting. Take this phone. It's a nice thing. Yeah. yeah uh, well, and it's also a giant pain. Uh, in some countries that have, like, in Japan, to have an actual SIM card for phone calls, you have to have your ID mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're just visiting for a week, it's a giant pain in the ass. I bet. You know, I rented a data-only device to avoid the whole thing. Yeah, that's uh, a good idea. Yeah. All right, let's talk about researchers who are using a Valve security bug to upload yeah, so, paint-drying game on Steam. Ooh, this sounds like a fun one. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, Valve has a system so that when indie games or whatever get posted, they check them first to make sure it's not malware before people start downloading and playing it. Uh, well, research found a bypass for the Valve review process and was able to upload a game called Watching Paint Dry. <laughs> I saw this. Uh, with no, without it being checked by any Valve employee at all, and it was up there and people could download it and play it. That's a lot of brilliant. I love it. That's Watching Paint Dry, which could be... Uh, which I think, I don't think it was actually a game involved. It was yeah, just yeah. The, but it was in the store. He also, I think, managed to upload fake Steam cards and a couple other things. Uh, and uh, Valve since fixed the loophole, but it was fairly trivial for somebody to bypass their whole security system and just upload malware into the Steam store. If uh, you've gotten uh, a Samsung device in the past or a few other phones, you're familiar with TrueCaller. We've talked about it before. There's a flaw in TrueCaller in the app that left their user data exposed. We have an update. Yeah. So basically... TrueColor does all of its authentication based on the IMEA number. Uh-huh. So if I just guess your IMEA number and send an API call, I can get all the data that your phone has sent to them. Which would be everybody who's called you. Yeah. And um, a bunch of other stuff. All and your like, block they, they rules. Ask you, they ask you a bunch of questions when you yes. sign up, like who you are and how old you are. Yes. They get all the data. They've already, there's just, already proof of code out there that's been shared with Softpedia. And it's, it's uh, really, really badly done security. Yeah. Yeah, oh, they're trying it on iOS version too. TrueCaller also posted a blog post alerting users and recommending an immediate update to the latest Android app version. Because I'm guessing yeah. they they want to kill off their old API server that has the flaw. TrueCaller and TrueCaller. What's great about TrueCaller is in order for it to work, it literally has to be activated every time you're making a call or receiving a call because it's like it's like caller ID. It really needs to work for making a call, honestly. No, you can though, uh, right. but it's like caller ID on steroids. But I mean, like. Yes, uh, except for I don't think it works in most cases. Like the the type of phone spam I get, where it's just mm-hmm. some like recording in Spanish or something. Mm-hmm. I, I find doubt it, it was d- going to do that because they're spoofing uh, the caller ID. I find it to be pretty underwhelming. I've tried it too. I no longer use it. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so we have a tweet. Here's wishful thinking. What's this one, Alan? Uh, this is somebody describing the process they would use to hack the iPhone uh, for the FBI. It turns out that uh, the counter of how many failed attempts there have been on the iPhone uh, before it, you know, it erases itself or whatever is stored in the Flash. So they would just image the Flash 
try a bunch of times, then write yep. the counter file back with the lower number and then try some more and write it back with the lower number. And it required rebooting the phone a lot, but they basically outline a process that seems like it'd be very easy to bypass. And it works on iOS 9.3 yeah. or lower, uh, which is the latest. And, yeah. And so uh, they also suggest that Apple should keep that counter in like the, the baseband ROM or something that's you know, a lot harder for somebody to poke around in. Hmm. You know, uh, I wonder if that might be similar to what the FBI ended up doing since they are now unlocking a six. Yes. Well, they uh, they won't tell us what they're doing. No. Right. In fact, uh, we covered it last night's Unfilter about why they likely never will. It involves money. Anyways, check out Unfilter for that. Uh, as Amazon's Raspberry Pi guide lets coders build an Echo. And this is super cool. I actually looked into this quite a bit. Yeah, so in order to basically provide a development kit for people to build apps and so on for the Amazon Echo, they figured a way to allow you to just hook up a microphone and camera or whatever to your Raspberry Pi via USB, and they give you all the stuff and all the instructions so that you can start building apps. Uh, you know, this makes a lot of sense, whereas, you know, even if, if they sold their own dev board and kit, some people would buy it and develop apps, but lots of people have Raspberry Pi and be like, sure, I'd love to look at maybe doing something like this. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty neat. The only downside, and it's like it's like a full-on echo. The only downside is it doesn't do the always listening where you can say, hey, Alexa, it has to be um, pushed a trigger. So you have to trigger it. Which, you know, you could rig up a way to do that probably with an app on your phone or something. There's lots of ways you could rig up triggering it. So that's pretty neat to play with. Good project if you've got a Raspberry Pi sitting around. Uh, all right, let's talk about Cloudflare. Cloudflare, yes. not Cloudflare. Cloudflare. Tell me about this guy. Yeah, uh, so they're, they've been having a fight with Tor. Oh, that's weird. Hmm, uh, because uh, when they detect users from Tor, they're often uh, bots or spammers. You know, mm-hmm. lots of bad things happen on Tor. Sure, sure. Uh, so they display a captcha. But when you solve the captcha, you get the page. But because of the way Tor works, the next time you pull up a different page, your cookies aren't kept at, when you go to a different website, right? Uh, that's part of the Tor browser's security feature. And um, you use it, end up going out a different exit node to have a different IP address. So then Cloudflare pops up another CAPTCHA. So if you're just trying to like browse your regular daily news for half an hour on, uh, on using Tor, you could get like 30 Cloudflare CAPTCHAs and you know be very unhappy. Also, if you have JavaScript disabled, uh, the re- Captcha, capture things are much more difficult than the Java-based ones, and uh, they can get to the point where they're like unreadable, right? Because they had to fight against bots that were actually solving the captures. Uh, whereas if you have the JavaScript one, it does a bunch of stuff, and you know, oftentimes I don't actually get a capture anymore. I get check a box that says I'm a human. I, I have been robot. seeing that more and more. Thankfully, I like that. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and so it's been. So uh, Cloudflare's latest proposal is, uh, how about the Tor browser bundle include a special Cloudflare plugin in the browser uh, that would basically store a bunch of unlinkable, pre-generated CAPTCHA answers to obviate the need for the CAPTCHA. Basically, a way to prove that it's actually human using Tor, not a spammer. Mm -hmm. Although I'm not clear how a spammer couldn't use the... If you you know, look at the open source plugin and use it to allow their spam bot to so, huh? answer the captures. That would be the mouse, the cat and mouse game if you did it that way. Yeah, so I don't know that it's actually a solution, but there's a whole discussion about it. And uh, if you're interested in uh, 
or you know, if you use Tor and are having this problem, you might be interested in reading about it. Uh, and they have a, a whole basically an RFC of how they would design the system, and uh, I just don't know if it will actually be any use. Because mm-hmm. hmm. um, obviously, users have uh, are worried about you know, oh, well, you could have this cookie that would work across the whole Cloudflare network, but then Cloudflare can track you across every site on Cloudflare. I saw metrics today saying that uh, 90% of the traffic on the Tor network or something like that is malicious. I don't know where the stats came from. Well, seems uh, like they... I think that stat comes from Cloudflare. Okay. That's what I was, it seems like, there seems like there's uh, some... But, uh, their, their definition of malicious is different there. Uh, it's not all, you know, attacks, but some of it is people going to darknet sites, they consider that malicious. And a bunch of other stuff. It's adorable. Hmm. Okay, so we won't be live in our regular time next week, so I have put together uh, in our last link here in the roundup something for you to go read, a four-part series, they say, of the mastermind behind TrueCrypt, amongst other things. They say they think they've figured out who he is. Turns out he's a criminal. Uh, (laughs) uh, Some call him a kingpin. Anyways, it's a four-part series, and it is linked in the uh, show notes if you guys want to check that out. This is for TrueCrypt? That's what they say. That's what they say. Huh. I, don't, I haven't read it yet. The, the speculation had always been that they worked for the government and right. decided to kill it off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 90% of mal- uh, malicious is Tor, not 90% of Tor is malicious. That's, well, whatever. I, that's not what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Thank you, Quirky. 90% of malicious is done over Traffic. Tor. Yeah. Uh, I would definitely say no, Tor's not fast enough to handle that much malicious. I know, right? <laughs> That's always the Achilles heel of Tor right there. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Text. Now, that's it right there, 260 in the can. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to find out when we are live. Like I mentioned, we won't be here next week, but we will have an episode for you, so don't worry about that. And you can also send us feedback. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown or send it into the subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And jplive.tv is where you watch to participate in that there chat room we've referenced a couple of times this week. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 